It's behind the headlines on WLIWFM. This is our weekly opportunity to sit down with the award-winning journalists on the East End and do a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's news. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw. I'm your co-host. I'm executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the 27 and the website 27east.com. Uh, with me is my managing editor and co-host, Bill Sutton. Hey, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good to have you. And uh, our panelists today are Denise Civiletti, editor of Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Uh, and you're Den- on mute Denise there, is so. muted. Come on, let's so hear you. Denise coming on. I got you. Let's hear you say hello. Uh, Oliver Peterson, who is the managing editor of DancePapers.com. Hey, Oliver. How are you? Good to have you here. And our own Annette Hinkle, who is the arts and living editor at the Express News Group. Hey, Annette. Hey, Joe, how are you? He is coming to us al fresco, which is nice uh, for those of you who may be watching on the podcast uh, streaming it. Um, So I want to start off, Denise, talking about monkeypox, which uh, is now uh, going to be a thing in Suffolk County. The the vaccine is arriving in Suffolk County. Uh, The county executive, Steve Ballone, is set to have a press conference on Friday to announce Uh, the county's vaccine efforts. They're working with Northwell Health, and it looks like they're going to focus initially on Fire Island. You know, we're still in the midst of the COVID pandemic, and I think that has everybody sort of tense about reports about monkeypox. I think it's probably important for us to give a little detail about um, what we're dealing with here and, 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 you know, how concerned people should be about it. So can you help us through this a little bit? I mean, I can try. I mean, I've been looking at the state Department of Health website. I, I don't really know that much about it, but, you know, I didn't know anything about coronaviruses a couple of years yeah. ago, <laughs> even though, you know, we all get colds. But who knew? Anyway, um, the you know, it's a it's a virus. Um, it's spread uh, by close contact. It's apparently pretty readily spread, but thankfully uh, does not generally cause serious illness. Um it, it's rarely fatal, and uh, it's a it's a pretty rare virus in these parts of the in this part of the world. Um, but it, it produces uh, what I think you can only say is a nasty rash. Um, when I was looking at photos of the rash, I thought, oh, certainly these are photoshopped images. Somebody like, <laughs> but they're not. And no, um, it's a, it's you know, akin to it's akin to smallpox, right? I mean, it's a very similar kind of a. Very, it's, very, it's very, pa- very, pa- very painful. They say the rash is very painful, but uh, you know, it's it's again, it's really, uh, as far as we know, uh, serious in terms of long term illness and uh, fatalities and things like that. But but it's it spreads up fairly easily, apparently, um, and it is spreading um, more in the LGBTQ community uh, than in, in general. Um, there's, um, and that's why the county executive announced he is, the county's focusing its initial vaccination efforts on, um, Fire Island and, uh, particularly in, uh, Cherry Grove and the Pines, um, where there are large, uh, LBGTQ communities. Um, and, uh, you know, it's spread by, um, kind of like skin to skin contact. Um, so even, I don't you know, think the experts, cuddling, I don't think they, they really know why it's yeah. spreading mostly, um, you know, in in the LGBTQ community. But the, I believe it's you know the overwhelming number of cases wow. have been within that community so far. Well, we we were talking about that here, and and Vic thinking that perhaps it's because that's where it started here, as opposed to yeah. being something that's spread by the mechanism of um, like HIV of the exchange of bodily fluids and um, male to with male um, intercourse and sexual activity. So, um, you know, it it could be perhaps because that's where it started. Um, There's a limited number of, uh, there is a vaccine and there's a limited number of vaccines available in the United States. Uh, The federal government has allocated a little over 8,000 doses uh, to, to New York state the vast majority of those, almost 6,000, are going to New York City. And of the remaining doses, the second highest number is going to be distributed in uh, in Suffolk County. Um, and with, the county's uh, had, what, like two or three cases, Denise? 
three as of uh, yesterday's uh, report on the state website. And um, overall, I think 153 cases statewide so far. Um, so. I think it's fascinating um, too that the yeah. vaccine, the reason the federal government has the vaccine is that they had developed this vaccine uh, against potential bioweapons. Um, and that's mm. why they had it on hand that, that the concern was <clears throat> that monkeypox might be something that could be used as a bioweapon at some point. And so they had this stockpile of viruses, I'm sorry, of vaccines. Uh, and, and so this is one of the rare times when you have a, an outbreak that's starting, but you have the vaccine ready to go. And, and they're very clearly strategically trying to get it out into the community uh, and target it as best they can to, to try and nip this at the bud. Do we know uh, there's two things. One, it also does spread through droplets. It's not just skin to skin. Is it? I know it can spread like coronavirus, through, like through droplets. But um, do we know, um, is the vaccine like an mRNA or is it like a traditional vaccine? Do we know? I don't know. I, don't I think know. it's a traditional vaccine, if I'm not mistaken, because I think, as I said, they developed it um, some years back. And I think it may be, it's, it's actually, yeah. if I understand correctly, uh, it's one of those viruses that we do have, uh, we have measures that we can deal with it. It's just that it's so rare now that, that um, people don't have the immunity to it. Th this is all happening at a time too, when we're still dealing with uh, COVID, right? I mean, and, and now there's some concerns that the new variants yeah. uh, that are out there are are going to potentially be uh, a worry again. Even more contagious, they're saying, the new variant uh, or sub-variant, I'm not sure what really to call it, of Omicron, the BA5, I think it is, that, right? Um, so I believe, I believe that's yeah, it. Yeah. There's, there's talk about an Omicron um, specific vaccine booster being made available this fall. Uh, I have, you know, when you go out and about in the community right now, uh, I don't see masks anymore. I don't see, I think everybody has really dropped their, their guard significantly. Hardly you know, any. You see a few people in the stores, but um, not, not to draw assumptions from their appearance, but I mean, it, it, the few that I've seen appear to be people who may be you know, compromised and, you know, mm -hmm. care for elderly people and, you know. It's interesting. Yeah. I actually asked, um, I actually asked the people at West Hampton Beach about their mask policy and um, they're finding that, yeah, people are not wearing masks and, and they're not requiring it. I think in a lot of like entertainment venues, a lot of them are sort of leaving it up to the patrons. But I also feel like the further east you go, you maybe get an older population that is still more nervous. And I feel like yeah. Out, out um, in like East Hampton, Sac Harbor, I see more masks than maybe are being worn to the West. Um, and oh, I was is that like, right? Yeah. And like when you go to, to like performances at Bay Street, I feel like there's more mask wearing because it, it is also a, um, a largely older population. So so I don't know how much of it is geographic, um, political or basically demographics as far as age. But I do feel like when I, I find myself in groups of people that are older, there's a lot more mask wearing and um, care taken in that regard. And uh, what's the deal right now with, with the venues for summer events? Are they requiring I, masks? You know, it seems like every time I go, it's a different thing. Like the first play that I attended at Bay street, they were no longer, were they, I think they were checking, they were not checking vaccinations anymore, but you had to wear a mask indoors. Um, when you watch the play, um, this time, they didn't do either. But again, there were, I think, quite a few people in the audience who are still were wearing masks. So I, I feel like in general, a lot of the venues follow whatever policy is happening in New York. Um, and I just spoke with uh, Maria Martin, who is the founder of the Bridgehampton Chamber Music Festival, and um, they will be requiring masks at their venues because, again, they do have a, an older population. Um, and she said, and they will be checking vaccinations as well. And it's interesting because she said that instead of being a, a, a hindrance to attracting people, that's what they want to know that they're doing in order to come to their performances. Um, so that's, a, you know, a very good example of one venue who's really, they're really looking at who they're their core audiences and deciding mm. what the policy is. And she, um, Maria had also mentioned, she had heard that there was, you know, they were lifting mask mandates on Broadway, but I think that they're now going back to requiring them again soon. I'm not, I'm not quite I up on that, but. I saw a show recently and, and there was a mask mandate. Um, mm -hmm. uh, they weren't checking 
vaccines or anything, but they did require masks through the entire show. And they were very vigilant about it too. They, yeah. they actually had, I saw people, I saw ushers coming down and speaking to people mm-hmm. who had lowered their masks. And Yeah. Uh, I feel like, them. I feel like the venues are sort of each kind of carving out their own policy based on their audience. Um, which is interesting. That seems reasonable. I'm just curious, you know, there's five of us here. Are you guys wearing masks? Because I, I have to admit, I don't wear a mask uh, much anymore. I always have one, but I don't, I haven't worn it much. I'm, I'm not wearing much. The only time I'll wear it if, if I'm going to, um, you know, like a big box retailer and it looks really busy and the parking lot's full and you've got to circle around for a parking spot and all they, that. And I figure then the store is pretty crowded, so I might throw the mask on. But other than that, I can't say that I am. Oh, I, I have, I've really not been wearing masks lately. Um, the, um, my husband had um, kind of a nasty cold uh, last week and um, just as they say out of an abundance of caution when I was like even in the office and when I went out I wore a mask just in case it was something you know that I was catching or that I could transmit um, I mean I, I kind of feel like that's a really good um, you know respectful policy to have as a person in general <laughs> i mean just to even prevent the spreads of colds and flus i mean sure. you know it really doesn't hurt especially these uh these little blue surgical masks that you have i mean they're they're easy to breathe through and everything but they prevent a good portion of the germs that you might ex- exhale so if you're not feeling well or someone you live with is sick no matter what they're sick with it would be a good thing for us to do that other cultures do that and they have lower rates of of illness um but anyway, I'm not really Absolutely. wearing masks in stores generally. And Oliver, you know, we're in the time of year where a lot of the stuff is outdoors, and I think that makes a difference too. Yeah, I, I've been I've been like one of the sort of last holdouts with masks, but I like literally probably this week has been the first week. Like I, I went to the movies last night and did not wear a mask. I brought it in case it was felt crowded, but it, you know we ended up in the front row, so that was kind of a safe spot anyway but um yeah it's gonna be interesting i i kind of thought this summer we would really gain on it more than we have we we don't seem to be gaining on it to the degree that i was hoping we would uh and i worry about when fall comes uh whether we'll see a resurgence and and obviously the longer it hangs around uh the more chance there's variants and stuff too so that's a little alarming uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. Uh, my co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, uh, Oliver Peterson of DansPapers.com, and Annette Hinkle, uh, who is with us uh, at the Express News Group. Um, Denise, I want to talk about Riverhead Town. Uh, there's a lot going on up your way, right? The, um, the, one of the big things that happened just in the last couple of days is that the town um, dismissed uh, one of its planning consultants. Uh, they spent a lot of money with them, right? And and uh, what did they end up to, what did they have to show for, for it? Well, um, the town officials felt like, you know, clearly felt like not enough. <laughs> um, so these folks, they hired this planning firm in um Actually, the resolution was passed October 2019. It, the contract was signed in uh, early January 2020, just after the current supervisor took office. And um, of course, you know, within two months, COVID shut everything down. And the consultants and town, the town uh, chief planner, um, both said, you know, COVID slowed everything down and hindered their ability to do the work. And I mean, the plan was supposed to be done last summer um and it we still you know as of when they terminated the contract we still haven't seen a draft of of it um they can they conducted a series of community meetings getting people's comments they compiled the comments they presented the comments to the town board um they helped the planning director launch uh, an interactive website they had an online survey it was kind of like a lot of opinion gathering but not a lot of like, here's what we think the town would benefit from doing um, with the exception of their, their uh, traffic engineering sub subcontractors uh, had made that proposal that went over like a lead balloon about that widening sound Avenue and adding a center turning lane. <laughs> so 
uh, you know, town officials got frustrated. The contract was a $675,000 contract. Um, it was it was set to expire last year. The town board last year extended it for a year and they worked out a deal where they didn't have they cut some tasks so they didn't have to pay any more money for the one year extension. But now August is uh, a month away and it's going to expire again. And they, now they were saying it wouldn't be done until next spring. So the so town this just decided back, right? to bail. Uh, yeah. And that's worrisome to people. Um, you know, civic activists, people, environmental activists, people in the community, like, what does this mean? Because the longer we don't have an update, our plan was done in 2003. A lot has happened since then. And, um, you know, the longer we don't have an updated plan, the more uh, development that's going to take place uh, under the old plan and the more the town seems willing to, very willing to kind of like adopt sort of bold new zoning ordinances and things without benefit of an overall uh, long range plan. We've seen that, we've seen changes to the, the downtown zoning districts, uh, a new overlay district that allows higher density development in the Railroad Avenue area in an effort to revitalize that. So, you know, there are people that are worried that all these things are coming together and happening before, you know, while we still have this kind of outdated plan and, um, yeah. It's funny. What it's, that, what's going to happen? I've always thought that about the planning process uh, yeah. with these towns. It's like it's like swimming in a river. You you you're swimming, but if you you know the current is still moving. Like the, things are happening yeah. while you're trying to plan for them, and yeah. if you're if you're too slow, it just keeps sweeping you along, and eventually you end up somewhere where you may not have intended to be. And that's, it, and that's why it. a lot of people, I'm sorry, but a lot of people advocate a moratorium for exactly that reason, while the plan is, is being developed. Uh, Riverhead did that 20 years ago, um, and the, the town has no appetite for that now. Um, developers and business owners and property owners, meanwhile, are like, they say, hey, you know, we're, we're like, everything's uncertain for us, too. And they don't like how this feels either. I'm sorry, Bill, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 not at all. I was just going to, I was agreeing with Joe that it seems like every time they undertake these master plans, it's a decade long process. And then by the time, mm -hmm. by the time they're done, you know, they're, they're just completely outdated and it's millions, of dollars, millions of dollars that go into these plans. This isn't going to affect any, so you think the, um, you know, the plans in, in, you know, the downtown revitalization stuff and, um, you know, and, and, and the other downtown um, projects that are going on. I mean, this isn't going to stall those, do you think? I don't I don't see that happening. I mean, <clears throat> like, you know, everything that's happening downtown is being done under the, you know, under the, the former plan, the zoning that was adopted after that plan, uh, which allowed for, you know, the five story apartment buildings right. and that kind of thing. So, I mean, that's you know, that seems to be proceeding full steam ahead. Um, some people were hoping a master plan, a new update would like curb that, you know. Um, the town in the interim did this pattern book thing that recommended, that focused on downtown and recommended various changes to the zoning that would kind of scale back some of that development. And um, the town was ready to uh, enact an ordinance changes to, to implement the pattern book. and. Um, at the last minute, put that on hold. Yeah. Because of some complaints by people who are, you know, representing developers. So, so um, interesting. Something similar yeah. happened in, in Hampton Bays with pattern books. And uh, I think a yes. lot of people were sort of confused about how that fits into the planning process. Yeah. It's been what, what, what's going on with, um, with the issue with the gun shop? up your way as well, because obviously with what's been going on lately, uh, it's got to be a matter of, of interest. Uh, what's, what's, what's the town doing at the moment? Well, I mean, I guess that's the question of the hour because the town, there was a, a, a hearing that drew a lot of people and a lot of comments from the public uh, um, that would have regulated uh, gun shops in Riverhead. They would have banned gun shops on, on Main Street and would have put other regulations in place. And um, it was the oddest thing. The town board members sort of professed to not know where it came from or why it was before them, but yet they scheduled it for a public hearing. They had this public hearing, and then subsequently 
uh, don't want to talk about it. Mm. Like, mm. It's like, well, what, what are you going to do? You know, well, most recently the supervisor said, well, if somebody on the town board wants to bring it up, we'll bring it up. I, I'm not, I'm not sure what to make of that or how to, you know, what does that mean? Yeah. I mean, like, it it sounds like they're not going to talk about it. I mean, this has happened with other proposed code revisions that they went to public hearing on. They don't, it doesn't come before the board at a, at a work session. Like it normally would. Is there just no appetite for it? You think among the board? I think they're having conversations behind the scenes. Like, you know, I mean, I think that happens regularly with this particular administration and this group of board members. And, you know, it leaves the public in the dark and questioning what, what's going on and why asking why things happen when they happen. Um, I don't think it's a healthy way <laughs> to cover myself, but, you know, we keep asking the questions and uh, we try to get answers because, you know, that's our job, but, um, you know, we're not getting very satisfactory answers. So I don't, you know, that law, the, the code amendments out there, um, the application for the uh, gun shop and indoor shooting range on Elton Street that really drew a lot of uh, interest and, and concern and criticism. Um, that's still kind of hanging out there without resolution. They, um, they didn't file, as of yesterday, they had not filed a new, a revised application. Um, so there's just a lot of unknowns at this time, but we're, we're going to keep plugging away, you know, yeah. sooner or later you keep chipping at it and you find out what's underneath. That's <laughs> the job. In a nutshell, yeah. that's the job. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group, as is our panelist, Annette Hinkle. Uh, we also have Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local and Oliver Peterson from DansPapers.com. Um, so a couple of beach issues. Seems like middle of, you know, I guess it's not really the middle of July yet, but we're in. We're well into July now. Uh, it's time to start talking about some beach issues. So a couple things. Um, Oliver, I know that that uh, you guys wrote about something we've written about over the years, too, and, and there's a protest planned this weekend that people may notice. I believe it's at Cooper's Beach in Southampton Village. Um, the Shinnecock Nation is upset about uh, the lack of access to village beaches, right? Can you tell us a little bit more about the story there? Um, yeah, sure. Um, so um, we have a, a sort of a, a intermittent column called uh, Shinnecock Voices. So um, uh, a, someone named uh, Adrena Smith wrote about this is a, um, they're having, yeah, like you said, a protest on Saturday. They're gathering at Cooper's Beach. Um, and basically they're, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an issue of wanting um, to not have to pay for these um, non-resident beach permits because the, the Shinnecock reservation falls outside of those, um, those, those borders. So, um, you know, they, they, uh, believe that they should, uh, not have to be paying that, whatever it is, what is it? $400 now, something like that. For yeah. For, for non-resident of the village, which I have to say is kind of a thumb in the eye, uh, mm-hmm. a little bit. And, and I get it. I mean, according to strictly according to, to Hoyle, uh, if you look at the, at the rules here, the, 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 the Shinnecock territory is outside Southampton village, but we're really splitting hairs here. I mean, I, you know, the Shinnecock, uh, I think would certainly make the case that, uh, they have, they have, um, you know, well, tra- traditionally they've the always, they, they've always felt that they were part of the village, uh, on, yes. on, on the territory. And I think you're right. It, it's a, it's a slap in the face. I wonder what the hesitation is for the village to deal with this. I mean, I realize that limited um, limited parking spaces and, you know, and and I'm there's there's an economic element, I'm sure, to to the decision, too. They depend on a certain amount of revenue from from the parking passes. And if you're, you know, um, in a certain amount, I think they plan on on a certain number of residents and a certain number of non-resident and. This just throws the calculations all off. I would hate to. So, I would. I would hate to think that it's. It's you know cultural objections. Yeah, the problem is it's a bad look, and no. and you can't rule that out. That that um, this may not be just about economics, and and um, very clearly 
I, I think that's the point of the protest, Oliver, that, that I, I think the Shinnecock are, are really aggrieved about this. And, and it's partly because they've raised this issue. I know that um, Deonnie Brown, who's a good friend of ours, a former employee at the press, uh, this has been one of her fights for years. And they, they've been trying for years to, to come up with a reasonable uh, solution to this and don't seem to be making any headway whatsoever with the village. And I think that leads to frustration. Yeah, in fact, Dion, yeah, Diani actually writes um, these Shinnecock Voices columns for us on occasion. Um, but yeah, absolutely, this um, Adrena Smith, uh, certainly in her column, which is which is up on dancepapers.com, uh, says very clearly that she thinks that it's that, you know, deeply connected to racism. <laughs> so, yeah. you know. I mean, it's a, it's it's just impossible to reject that out of hand. I mean, there's 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 you know, it's it, it would be nice to be able to say, well, but that's clearly not the case. But we can't really say that, can we? I mean, we don't really have any evidence to for why this is the case. And that's as good an explanation as any. I hate to say it. Um, very frustrating. Um, but the, the village is going it, to. It's, it's surprising to me. I mean, the current administration and Mayor Jesse Warren, I think, has been um, in his time in office pretty supportive of of the Shinnecock Nation. And maybe maybe now maybe this is the year with, you know, with with his administration in power that that maybe some some changes can be made and, and some kind of compromise you know reached I, I think again you're talking about numbers you're talking about a lot of people um you know living on the reserve on the on the territory and if if you were to give them all beach stickers then you know again that you know that kind of i think the fear would be that you know that the parking lot would be you know would would be overloaded but but there's got to be some kind of uh compromise there some kind of way to um you know to to make to work it out for you know beneficial for both sides and really yeah. would it i mean you know i, I mean you wonder it's sort of like uh, the, you know to get the beach permits doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to use it either all at once right yeah you know um but uh yeah their their um their protest is at um at noon on saturday and they're using this beach back hashtag so if you go on social media, they may have some stuff floating around to read about there, see what people are saying. Um, Ironically, I think they're going to have to have um, the protesters arrive on on shuttle buses because you can't park at at the beach for the for the protest or you're going to get a ticket. That's it. You know, it's it's important for people who may not be uh, fully aware of this, but the, the beaches are available to anybody. It's the parking that's the issue. That, that you just, you know, and, and getting to and from the beaches, uh, at least there are some more options now with Uber and things like that. You have the ability to get to these beaches without having to park. But um, not, I, not, for, not for nothing as a part time Uber, Uber driver, sometimes I do drop people off at the beach and, and pick them up. But one, you know, one very minor complaint is, is they won't let you into the parking lot you know, the Uber car, you have to do the drop off um, outside of the lot. And I guess they don't want to tie up traffic, but that, that also seems like they're, they're not making it very attractive for people who are taking an Uber to the beach and have to get out of the car, you know, kind of across the street and walk all the way up to the, you know, to the beach access to the clubhouse and, and all that. And you have to wonder if that's intentional too. You bring up a good point too, Joe, about, um, the parking versus being allowed on the beach. I remember going to New Jersey for the first time and having to wear these beach badges. Um, and I went there with a friend and you, you, they literally, humans have to pay to get a little like badge on, you know. Mm. Those are the worst. Um, yeah, I remember I used to go down to Spring Lake when I lived in Jersey and same thing, you would fall, you just fall asleep on the beach and somebody would come along and like prod you to show your <laughs> wristband like every 20 minutes. It was a really, really ridiculous system. So, so we had a we had a beach access discussion of our own in Riverhead this week. Actually, it was kind of funny, but um, the supervisor brought that up about you know said, "Well, we don't have the beach police, but maybe that's something we need." Um, Is it what was why yeah. was it brought up? Was it brought up because the beaches are are overrun? Oh, Is- so 
Yeah, the town the town had a public hearing on a code amendment that would um, um, eliminate the possibility eliminate non-resident seasonal passes um, and um, for parking parking permits because again you know you're regulating the vehicles um, and um, this uh, was something that uh, everybody on the t- came out of the beach committee and it was something that everybody on the town board was uh, in favor of. But um, the board kind of got into a weird discussion about something else and uh, that was already addressed in the code, though none of them seemed to be aware of it. I, I don't know what to hmm. say, but um, and that is like, what if there's a senior citizen or a handicapped person who doesn't have a car and they have a daughter or a son or somebody that wants to drive them to the beach? Now we're prevent this had nothing to do with the subject of the public hearing. And in fact, that situation is specifically dealt with in the town code. So I don't know. It was just, like I said, a weird discussion. But in any event, the supervisor brought up the fact that we don't have, we're just regulating parking. We're not regulating access to the beach. We don't have beach police. So it um, it should be said out loud, too, that I've always been uh, struck by the fact that the breadth and width of the beaches, especially the ocean beaches on the South Fork, they're never crowded. I mean, even when they're crowded, there's plenty of room. There's lots yeah. of room for everybody. Uh, that's not the issue. The issue really has more to do with how they people get back and forth from the beach. So this leads into a, a we should yeah. briefly talk about East Hampton Town and uh, the uh, the East Hampton Town Board and the town trustees were actually held in contempt of court from a, by a state Supreme Court judge this week. Um, and it was it was last week, actually. Uh, and the judge really scolded the town officials um, for their behavior. And, and the point here, Oliver, was that that uh, the town was ordered to block access to Truck Beach, which is the stretch of beach in Amagansett that has been the subject of a court case. And the debate was, should vehicles have access or not? And as the current law stands, the current interpretation from the courts is that trucks trucks are not allowed on that stretch of beach. But trucks have been parking on that beach from time to time as a protest, and the courts got mad at the town and said they really haven't done enough to, to stop that. I think that's the issue of the, the ruling, correct? Yeah, um, it, it, yeah, he, uh, he, he fined, um, the, yeah, the, he fined the town and the trustees $239,000 um, for that. Taxpayer um, money. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, is the quote here, and is, uh, yeah, they just, he said, you know, they've demonstrated an appalling studied indifference and deliberate disobedience to the lawful and unequivocal orders of this court. Um, but yeah, it's sort of been a lightning rod, hasn't it? This truck beach issue between sort of the locals and I mean, it, in a way, it's like become like this um, proxy, you know, it's like a, the locals versus the, uh, the the visitors type of situation, in, in, at least in my estimation. I believe there was another component where they're trying to get the town to um, recall like 6,000 driving permits that they've given since 2021, um, which I find really confounding. Um, so I don't know if that means that those people will, even because they didn't notify them sufficiently of their, um, of not being able to drive on truck beach and therefore they're out. Right. right. No, nowhere on those permits. Does it, does it specify which beaches you, you can drive on? I think, you know, that was the town's point. And I think, they said they'll they'll probably reissue those those permits with some kind of you know card or 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 you know paper that 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 subsequently lists um, you know where the where where you're allowed to drive. But I thought that was really odd too that mm-hmm. you know that there wasn't a, a permit specifically for Truck Beach and the permits that they did issue. It just, it just seemed kind of punitive on the yeah. judge's part. Yeah. There's a couple of issues with Truck Beach that I think are are really interesting. One is that unlike so many of the beaches that we talk about, there really is no way to access this beach unless you park on the beach because there's no public parking nearby. It's a public, even if it were a public beach, there's really no way to get to it. So it, in in essence, becomes a private beach for those property owners. But there's much more at stake here. The, the, The court case involves a deal that the town made with those property owners years back. And it gets complicated because it's about what right 
people have to access the beach and, and the, the agreement actually said it was for fishing purposes, but we're really talking about fishing purposes in the 19th century uh, type of, and, and it's funny because in some ways this echoes the whole originalism fight that's going on at the U.S. Supreme Court. And Absolutely. Um, this, this is a case where the, the, the language of this agreement is being interpreted as when it was written in, in the, I, I believe it was in the 1800s, um, and so it's it's really about carts and fishing and accessing the beach by boat to, and and nets and things like that. So um, it's it's fa- you know it's a it's a fascinating case. But I think I think that rarely do you see a judge come down with it with a ruling that is so pointed. Oliver, you 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 read some of the the language in that ruling, uh, really calling the town out. Um, for not taking this court order seriously, and it cost the town uh, significantly. Yeah, and there, um, there, uh, the other little small uh, addendum to it is that the the homeowners who who you know the the homeowners at Truck Beach there um, wanted the trespassing um, stuff to be to be put in front of the judge who made this ruling against the town. Um, but he, you know, because they saw him as, I guess, in favor of their of their cause. Um, but it, it, he denied that and sent it back down to where it belongs. So, so yeah, the big. But I think that you know the question that was going on at the time, you know, back back when the you know this ruling originally came down and all that is, yeah, is it is it the town's responsibility to, you know, I, I mean, to to prohibit people from driving onto that beach. If it's private property and the property owners want to prohibit people from going on the beach, then is it more their responsibility or, or the town's? Is the town obligated to to post a police officer or an enforcement officer, you know, at, at that beach every day during the summer to make sure nobody's parking on it? Or is that somehow the property owner's then responsibility to put up proper so- signage and then you know, and and then and then it can be enforced. I mean, if they want to put a gate up or or whatever, it can then be enforced if somebody does go on the beach, I guess. And and the you know the cops can be called and you know and and try to remove them. But where does the responsibility lie? I mean, does if, if you you know if you have private property, I mean, in in the town, if you had a if you had a big house with a you know with a long driveway. It's your responsibility to put a gate at the end if you don't want people driving up your 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 driveway, right? And and that enforcement comes in if people trespass on that private property. But but where where does the town's responsibility lie on this? I guess is is the question. My question. That's a good point. Go ahead, Annette. I was just curious. Are we? You know, I'm. I, I, a lot of people. I've been. I just been hearing people say that this is like a slippery slope for. Um, eroding of, of beach rights along that along all of the South Fork, and I'm wondering, are there, uh, you know, do you guys see in Southampton, for example, this sort of being the case that's going to be used to try to privatize some of the beach access that has been un, up for debate in Southampton Town? I know that that former Southampton Town trustee Eric Schultz, who fought a lot of the legal battles over the years for the town has sort of talked in the past about the eroding nature of the region's beach access rules. But I think most observers that I've talked to have said that Truck Beach is actually an outlier because the battle is really about this agreement that was made in this specific instance for that specific stretch of beach. And and so- has I mean, the, the, the beach, the town- the town trustees sold the beach yes. <laughs> in 1882, and I don't think you, you saw any anything like that um, happen in other parts of the town or or in Southampton. They gave up the you know the rights at, at that point. And, it's a you know, why they did unique. that. I don't understand why they even did that then. You know, like I think they desperate time, for money or something. I'm at sure. the time, I think that the the, the um, set aside was to allow fishermen to continue access, which was really their big concern. This was a time prior to when the beaches were were for you know beachgoers. It was more about uh, fishing, and I think those rights were protected yeah. in this agreement but, back then. But who could foresee you know life in 2020 
at Truck Beach. But you're absolutely right, Bill. I think I think that's what makes this less impactful on the general. But but Eric Schultz has made the point many times that the court rulings that have come down in recent years have no. almost all started to go against the, the town trustees and the beach access rules that they've had in place for a very, very long time. And um, there are folks out there who are very concerned about whether beach access is, is going to be under assault on a regular basis as we go forward. And Denise, as you said, you know, these are, these are, these are region wide issues. I mean, I think it's being fought mostly in Southampton and East Hampton town, but these issues are all basically the same for uh, the North Fork as well. Yeah, and I, the, for the longest time, like the body of law that governs um, the right public the public access rights to the, the beach and the water is really very uh, old and ar- arcane. Um, Col- colonial, and, colonial stuff, even right. Well, and it, the, the the patent stuff comes yeah. into play. We don't have that here in Riverhead. I'm not all that familiar with it, but I know that, that that's a big issue on, on the South Fork. But I mean, you know. Anything seaward of the high, the mean high tide line is considered public property and there's, you know, public access rights under this longstanding body of law. Um, but of course, you know, the high tide line is shifting too. Um, and, you know, with the erosion and everything. So it's really uh, complicated that we, several years ago, some residents in Wading River actually put up a fence and a gate, like you're say, saying, Joe, uh, to, um, I mean, Bill, um, to prevent people from, you know, walking onto the beach and, you know, having parties and leaving trash and everything else. I mean, you know, the people who live there have very legitimate concerns about and complaints about that activity for sure. Um, So they put up this fence and a gate. And um, then there was an incident where Wading River Fire Rescue had to um, go onto the beach to um, rescue someone yeah. and they had to l- literally stop and cut down the fence, uh, you know, so there was a whole whole blue about that. And then, and then there was a lawsuit that that was in court with those property owners for quite some time and then eventually reached a settlement. But, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a really big issue because you want to be able to walk along the beach. I mean, people who live in this environment want to be able to go to the beach and take a, uh, take a stroll or sit at the water's edge and not necessarily in, in a designated town uh, or county uh, beach. Yeah, It's one of the uh, things that makes the region yeah. unique. I mean, sure. and, and as you say, sporadically, I think there've been challenges to that that have pretty much all been knocked down that, that in favor of making sure that the public has access, the freeholders in commonality, I believe is the way the uh, Dong and patent, uh, spelled it out. And that, that makes this area unusual and unique in a lot of ways. You talked about New Jersey and, and, you know, policing the beaches for who's allowed to be there. And that's just uh, not the case here, but clearly. When it, when, it, when it comes to truck beach though, I mean, you're talking about the, the objections are to the driving on the beach. And as you pointed out, Joe, there's no way to get to the beach other than, than, than driving on it, but it comes to the driving. And I think that, you know, un- unfortunately the, you know, the, the town and, and, you know, both both Southampton and East Hampton, you know, put themselves in a difficult situation when they first started regulating which beaches you could drive on, because then it it, it inherently isn't this right granted to to the to the commonality and freeholders of everybody that can drive on any beach. Right. You're you're at some point, you know, they're, they're coming in and saying, well, you can only drive on, you know, on hot dog beach or or, or truck beach or, or whatever. So then it's not an overall right for everybody. They've already put limitations in place. And I think then it becomes the defense, the, the defense of allowing people to drive on beaches um, becomes more difficult. I would think that's just my musing there. I also yeah, think I would, it's very strange, uh, like within the entire South Fork that that stretch of truck beach is the only one that the trustees sold off in the 19th century. I still yeah. find that very curious. It, it suited somebody's it, interest at the time. I'm sure. It's what makes it a unique case. Yeah. No question. And it, it's uh, uh, these battles over the beach are going to continue, I think, at, you know, into the future and, and uh, something to keep an eye on for sure. Uh, it's behind the headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw.
Bill Sutton is my co-host. We're with the Express News Group. Uh, we are guests today on the panel are Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Oliver Peterson of DansPapers.com, and Annette Hinkle of our own Express News Group. And Oliver, just to change gears a little bit, uh, I want to talk about a story you guys have about. So we we've written about um, Art Hamptons, which is coming up. It's the Art Fair. Uh, it's, it's in Ham August. Oh, it's the Hamptons. Oh, I'm sorry. You were talking. I saw about the one that was coming up next week. Go ahead. I just oh, okay. Which, I'm sorry. Oliver, which one is it? Um, the, I want, we, we want to talk about a, a group of art, a, a group of art that's going to be on display that was found in an unusual place. But where? So which show are we going to be able to see that? That's actually coming up at the show this month, right? Yeah, next weekend. Um, not, yeah, not the today, you know, um, the 15th, the weekend of the 15th. Uh, I've got it confused with the with the art fair in uh, August. Sorry about that. That's um, a Hamptons Fine Art Fair um, is the one. Uh, from okay, so that's that's next week. Yeah. So it, yeah. so talk about where uh, this is like for for folks like like me who like to go find things uh, in interesting places. There's going to be some art dis <laughs> art on display. Where was it found? Let's put it that way. Uh, it's a it's a really uh, fantastic story. So it it was actually found in a, in Connecticut in um in uh, Wa uh, Watertown, Connecticut. There was, um, but the but it, oddly, it actually has there are some small Hamptons connections with it. Aside from the fact that it's showing here, um, but this guy who is sort of just a blue collar dude, he's a skateboarder um, mechanic um, and does some building maintenance and stuff. Anyway, he gets a call. Barn, um, you know, and there's all this art here. Why don't you come take a look? So this guy, Jared Whipple, um, goes over there, and there are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of paintings uh, wrapped in plastic that are getting thrown out. Um, uh, a lifetime of art by this guy named. It turns out <clears throat> he had to investigate all this, but it turned out to be by this artist named Francis Hines. So <clears throat> he. Um, uh, Jared uh, said, uh, you know, he, he said, okay, you know, I'm, he was interested. So he, he decided to take it. He collected all. I mean, this barn was disgusting, broken windows, animal droppings everywhere, the whole bit. Um, and, and some of the art, I saw the photos, some of it was actually in a dumpster, right? Yeah, no, yeah, it, yeah, the, yes. So it was, it'd been, yeah, so they were cleaning it out from the barn, putting a lot of, yeah, and exactly, it ended up in this dumpster, excuse me, yeah. So, um, but, uh, so um, this guy, Jared, took it all. He took it all and um, sort of uh, this this man who uh, had died, Jer uh, Francis Hines, uh, it was 96 years old, um, wow. had died in 2016. And this clean out was in 2017. He had been, he'd been, Moved to New York in 1978, but he continued to use this barn to store his art. So he would just sort of send a truckload of art there every, you know, year or two, and uh, and he'd wrap each painting up and whatever. Um, uh, so uh, Jared uh, just started to open every piece, catalog every piece, um, and and it turned out this he discovered he figured out who whose work it was and and basically did a sort of deep dive into researching this guy, and um, it turned out this guy Francis Hines was kind of um uh, uh had like a brief period of note in like 1980 he wrapped the um, Washington Square Arch kind of like Cristo um, had done um, with other things um, and he wrapped buildings in uh, Lower East Side. And then he kind of faded into obscurity, but but the guy never stopped working. He was like 12 hours a day, seven days a week or whatever in his studio, um, just constantly making work. So it was a massive, massive trove of work that uh, anyway, uh, <clears throat> Jared uh, found found a, a sort of an expert who actually happens to be the guy that helps um, uh, deal with the Panagian estate. Do you guys familiar with him? Um, um, the, in, on the no. He's a, another one of these sort of obscure artists who is now, after his death, they've been sort of discovered. Um, <clears throat> and he he sort of declared, yeah, this is important work. This is good work. And sort of basically it turned out that, uh, you know, this that they said, okay, this collection of art is worth millions of dollars. Um, wow. About that. Yeah, so, so it's, so it's going to be on display at, at the, the Fine Art Fair uh, next week. Where is, where is that? It's um, that is at the um, it's in Southampton at um, it's at the fairgrounds. 
exactly. The, um, is it the Elks? At the Elks. Uh, at the Elks. Uh, yeah. yeah, and it runs. Yeah. Um, it runs July fourteenth through the seventeenth. Right. That's very cool. Now, That's Oliver, a, what was it? It's just a really cool story that that you know that. You know, not even the dollar amount, but that this guy's life life's work was was salvaged and, you know, and hopefully will be appreciated by people and, you know, and and, and bought and, and will live on rather than, you know, in a landfill. I think that's just really cool. That's all. It really is. It's a shame to think that it would have ended up just just thrown away somewhere. Yeah. Oliver, you said there were some local connections other than the fact that it's being shown here. What? Because um, he was mostly a Connecticut artist, right? No, well, he was New York City. So he, oh, New York City. I'm yeah, sorry. They Connecticut, like in the 70s. This. He was in Connecticut in the 70s, and then he went to New York City and basically uh, was there. Um, but, you know, so um, just some small things. Like I said, this guy, um, Peter Hastings Falk, who, um, uh, uh, who, who sort of helped uh, Jared understand the work and all this, because Jared Whipple didn't you know, he, he's like, he's, he was no art expert, but he, he made himself an expert on Francis Heinz and learned a lot. Um, but Falk, like I said, was, so not Hamptons per se, but North Fork was part of this rediscovery of this Arthur Panagian uh, on the North Fork. And, um, and then on top of that, uh, it turns out that um, Heinz shared a studio with a, with a local artist out here named Nick Weber, who's a, uh, excellent painter and uh, they became they were, had become great friends large wide age difference but they shared a studio for years um so so jared had gotten in touch with nick and learned a lot about about francis hines through nick weber who who is uh, i believe out in amagansett now uh, i've mm -hmm. written about him before in the past uh, you know really talented dude um, as bill said just a very cool story one of those awesome. uh one of those things you, you you love to read about those kinds of discoveries. It's good stuff. So, so we're almost out of time. I, <clears throat> I wanted to take a very brief moment to offer some congratulations to Father Alex Karlutsis um, mm -hmm. from the uh, Dormition of the Virgin Mary Greek Orthodox Church of the Hamptons, which is based in Shinnecock Hills. Father Alex is a good friend of mine. And what an amazing thing on Thursday. He was at the White House, which is not unusual. Father Alex is at the White House a lot. Uh, but uh, his good friend, President Joe Biden, presented him with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian honor uh, that's bestowed on American citizens. Uh, anybody who knows Father Alex knows it's well-deserved. He's an amazing guy. Uh, he's done a lot of work in the international community and nationally within his faith and outside of his faith. Uh, again, very good friends with the president. I'm sure that's... that's uh, helped get him on the radar, but to be one of 17 recipients, recipients of that medal this week, uh, just big congratulations to him. Uh, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. And I have to say, it was, it was really cool to see him on the NBC Nightly News last night. I don't know if you watched it, but they had like all of the stills of the 17. I'm like, look, it's Father Alex. It's amazing with, so with Simone Biles and Denzel Washington and yeah. uh, much more famous names, but uh, Father Alex, very deserving. Congratulations to him. So. So we are out of time. Uh, thank you uh, for joining us this weekend. Thank you to Denise Civiletti and Ed Hinkle and Oliver Peterson for being with us. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And Bill Sutton, my co-host, thank you, as always. Thank you, Joe. And uh, we will see you next time on Behind the Headlines. Thanks for listening.